everybody. Welcome to Skype a Scientist Live. Uh, today we are in day three of Archaeology Week. Um, we're super happy to have you all here and we're super excited to have our guest today, Smitty Nathan. Um, she's going to be talking to us all about blogging archaeology. Um, just so you're aware, we have two more days after today of uh, Archaeology Week. Tomorrow we're going to be digging deeper into how archaeology works at 7 p.m. Eastern. And then on Thursday, we're going to be talking about the Millennium on the Meridian, tracking the history of the ancient Southwest uh, of the United States. That's going to be at 1 p.m. on Thursday. Uh, next year, I mean, next year, next week, we're going to be talking about albatrosses, um, the very, very big ocean birds, and backyard conservation. That's going to be on Monday and Wednesday. But before we think too much about the future, let's celebrate the now. Let's talk about blogging archaeology. Uh, Smitty, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. And thank you for Aaron for translating. Really appreciate it. Aaron is wonderful. Okay, I am going to hide while you share slides. Uh, and Sounds then I'll good. turn back for the questions. Folks in the audience, if you have questions, please feel free to submit them at any time when we go to the Q&A portion of uh, today's live stream, we'll get into those questions. So feel free to submit them whenever you have them. Sounds good. All right, let me just get this slideshow on. All right, so thank you everyone for coming today. Um, as uh, Sarah mentioned, my name is Smitty Nathan and I'm gonna be speaking about blogging archeology. span Sorry, hoping for perfect. Okay, slide transition. Great. So I thought we'd first, I would briefly go over about how it all got started and how I got into blogging. So after a long day of field work in the Aksumiyaha region of Ethiopia, a couple of fellow grad students I were, and I were sitting around the dinner table and chatting. The topic of the night was communicating what we do as archaeologists to people outside the archaeology bubble. And while I had flirted with the idea of blogging before, um, even had strong nudges from people in my family, hi mom, and um, other friends, uh, it was really that conversation that night around the dinner table at, in Ethiopia that catalyzed me to actually start my blog. So today I thought we'd kick off our Q&A and I would briefly go over a couple of things. First, who, who am I, um, Why? Uh, what, how I define blogging, uh, what I blog about, and why I think people should care about archaeology blogs. So first, um, I'm Smitty. Um, I'm an archaeologist. I received my training um, in archaeology at New York University um, for my doctorate, but I also studied archaeology at UCL in London and the George Washington University. And actually, um, tomorrow, um, my former undergraduate advisor, Eric Klein, is going to be giving the talk, so I thought it was really fun to be on a series with him, too. So I'm currently at Johns Hopkins University, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. And my research interests really um, center around looking at ancient resource decision-making in ancient Oman and Ethiopia, specifically around food, but I dabble in other things as well. 
So for me, uh, blogs and blogging, there are kind of three things that I think about. Uh, mainly the first that it's web-based so it's not like print media and that you access it on the internet and then there's a chronology to it so there's like journal like entries so it's dynamic and it's ongoing and you see kind of this progression sometimes it stops sometimes it doesn't but there's that kind of dynamic chronology to it and then finally it can sometimes be written um, I engage mainly in like written blogs but I'm seeing more and more uh, with the social media, uh, videos, photography, only based blogs, podcasts. So I feel like with the increase of mediums, uh, blogging is changing. So what do I blog about? Uh, short answer, mainly archaeology, travel, food is always mentioned. But at the core of it, um, my blog is a personal one. So I highlight my various interests while trying to keep quote unquote on brand, um, but I'm a bit all over the place if I'm honest. Um, other blogs can be a bit more focused around a certain theme and they definitely have different ways of blogging, but at its core my blog is a personal one. So why follow archaeology blogs? Well, for one, I think you could learn something new. There's all sorts of information that I learned from my peers uh, working all around the world, and I think it's super fascinating. Um, of course, reading as an archaeologist, reading you know peer-reviewed journal articles, different books is important, but I feel like I get more personalized information sometimes when um, I read fellow archaeology blogs. And then there's the creativity part of it. Um, I use my blog for me as like a creative outlet and I love engaging with other archaeologists and creators who are excited about the creative process. Um, so it's been a nice community to tap into and I don't think you have to be an archaeologist um, to connect with someone there. And then finally, I would say um, there's just a diversity of perspectives you can access. Um, even though there is a bit of it, it might be tricky to start a blog sometimes depending on how you want to do it but I find like access to starting a blog might be a bit easier than like maybe um, you know maybe going through a whole archaeology program um, or doing a peer-reviewed journal article or things like that so I think you can still see kind of the diversity in archaeology um, in a quicker way through blogs at times. Um, and I think it can also highlight that there are different ways of being an archaeologist. Like not all of us are, you know, professors or working cultural resource management or in museums. Um, and that's totally fine if you are. It's great. Um, but there's other ways to be an archaeologist. Um, for example, like my day-to-day -day job currently is as a life design educator, but I still very much consider myself an archaeologist and engage in the field in different ways. So I'm going to end it there, um, but if you'd like to connect, this is my blog and that's my social media. I'm happy to throw it in the chat at some point too, but I'm really looking forward to the Q&A today. So, thanks. Awesome. Thanks for sharing all that with us. Yeah, no okay, problem. So the first question comes from Veer. What tools do historians, geographers, and archaeologists use to study the world? Okay, cool. So one thing, uh, 
we use a bunch of different tools, I would say, but one thing that I have a bit more experience with where it kind of crosses the line of geographers and possibly historians as well is maps. Um, and that's something I do blog about as well. Um, it's not just cartography, which is um, the study of maps, but also, um, you know, satellite remote sensing, how we're capturing those images and studying them and uh, understanding different archaeological sites as well. So to directly answer your question, one way we use um, satellite remote sensing is to identify archaeological sites. And we often can collaborate with historians as well, looking at historical maps, but also geographers who might have subject matter expertise in an area of maybe satellite remote sensing that we might not. But many archaeologists specialize in that field as well. So. That's super cool. Um, Jen wants to know, can you talk about your first dig? Where did you go and what did you do? Sure, um, I was really fortunate. Um, I was a broke college student and I, there was, it was really hard for me to even fathom paying for a dig, paying for the credits, the, it, that was just gonna be too much. So there was this opportunity to apply for an NSF REU, which is a National Science Foundation research experience for undergraduates. And there was an archeology span field school in Hungary. And I applied and I got in and that was my first dig. So we were on the Great Hungarian Plain um, digging there. Um, I believe it was a Copper Age site. And it was really cool. I, I really appreciated that experience and getting it paid for. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So anyone who is thinking about going into science, particularly folks who can't afford unpaid internships, which is most of us, uh, I know for sure that was me when I was an undergrad, look yeah. into, they're called R-E-U. R as in Rapunzel, E as in Edward, U as in undergrad. Uh, so look into those programs. They're all all paid. They're all over the country. Um, and they're supported by the National Science Foundation. They're everything from squid biology uh, to archaeology. So um, definitely those are those are really great um, things to check out. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people uh, that are now scientists who were um, trained in REU programs and they're just wonderful. Um, the next question is also from Jen. Can you recommend a place where we can find other archaeology blogs in addition to yours? Is there a network of like-minded scientists with blogs? So the short answer would be there's an archaeology blogger named Doug, and I think he has the blog Doug's Archaeology, and there's the big list of archaeology blogs, and he is very kind. He added my blog to the list years ago, and that is like a huge list. That is that's not um, curated aside from, hey, if you have an archaeology blog and you submit it, it's there. So if you want kind of, I would say, maybe the raw data, so to speak, um, that's a great um, place to look. Um, I also recommend, you know, using, looking at the mediums that you already use. So if you're an avid Twitter user, you know, search certain hashtags like archaeology and see uh, which people are coming up and check out their profile and see if there's a website. Same thing goes for um, Instagram too. You can do a search on Instagram. There's a pretty good community um, there too. And if there's certain things you're looking for, like people are welcome to like DM me and I'm happy to like connect them to places. But I'm always on the lookout for like different blogs too. So 
Awesome. Someone actually commented, um, archaeological analytics said, here are some archaeology blogs to check out from the United States and can Canadian cultural heritage institutions. So if you look at the answered questions in the Q&A, you can click that link directly and check that out. And so thank you, uh, awesome. archaeological analytics, for, for sharing that with us today. That's Appreciate super helpful. Um, the next question is from Gavin. What is the weirdest thing you've ever found? And I think his brother Colin is also curious about that. Oh, cool. Hi, Gavin and Colin. That's a great question. Um, and I don't mean to get super existential. It's just kind of what do you define as weird? Um, I think I would say what was the most surprising because sometimes you go in expecting to find one thing and then you don't um, or you find something that you didn't expect. And I would say probably it was at my first dig. I had no clue what to expect as we were digging. I thought we were digging like a household and we were, and we happened to find um, a tomb or a burial of like a baby. And I was just so surprised because I had no idea. It was, it was ancient, of course, very sad too. Um, but I was just kind of surprised and, and it really got me thinking, oh wow, okay, like people definitely you do things in different ways. Like I wouldn't necessarily think to bury someone that, you know, under my house, but there's different practices happening all across like the world. And I think that experience, especially being in my first uh, field school really opened my eyes to like, okay, there's a lot of ways we can interpret things. And it's really important to just keep an open mind because you might come across something unexpected. So. Okay. Yeah. So, um, where are you currently based now? So I'm currently in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I'm at the Johns Hopkins University as a life design educator, but I have a really supportive workplace. So I also do archeological research still. And we would have gone to the field if it wasn't for the pandemic at the moment, but that's okay. Like there's plenty of archeology span to do without going into the field. So. Awesome. So as an archeologist, you know, you have to be really careful about respecting the the folks who are where you're going right so like mm -hmm. for example like native americans we just had uh national and indigenous people say yesterday exactly. how do you um make sure that the work you're doing is super respectful of who that um those objects might truly belong to and like how do you how do you reckon with all of that and like the historical issues with archaeology right so that's a great question and i work in oman and ethiopia and i think there's different relationships just from those two countries to how the past is perceived how the land is perceived and how the objects might be perceived too so that's definitely um a huge <laughs> discussion that might overtake this but i will say i think it's really important um, when you go in to really make a big effort um if, especially if you're a field school student i think if you're an established archaeologist like this shouldn't even be like oh i should just think about it you have to be very proactive um thinking through you know how the current people uh perceive these different things um for example in some countries people are very hesitant to have archaeological um work done because if something's found they might lose their property um so it's really entangled in kind of uh their being um other people and other cultures feel very connected to uh the land and the people who was there before so i mean i'll be honest like my family is originally from like south india um 
I don't know how I would, I would be on one hand really excited if there was an archaeological site on our farm, but on the other hand, you know, there's this worry, I'm like, okay, what would happen to the farm? Like, what would uh, people, like, are those artifacts ours? Like, what's going on? So there's definitely different um, situations for each country and each region that you have to keep in mind, and it can feel very daunting. So I would say from the perspective of someone going in maybe um, as a field school student or starting off, um, do your research beforehand, have those conversations with the people um, you're going to work with. Um, I always think it's helpful to learn a bit of the language so you can communicate. Like sometimes it's very hard and not always possible until you're there. Um, but we definitely, that should be a conversation and work done before you even get there. So. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Thanks for answering that. Yeah, no problem. Um, Meredith would like to know, how do you pick your blog topics? Um, that's a great question. It's sometimes a bit of a whim, like, oh, what I'm like, I'm really excited to write about. Um, sometimes there could be a thematic thing happening. So I know in November, there's going to be Museum 30, and that kind of helps centers my blog. And um, that's, a, that's a Twitter kind of hashtag that got started and programmed um, by this account called Magnify Zoology, and it's pretty cool. So sometimes there's like little campaigns happening that help me structure. Sometimes I think I look at my posts and I'm like, oh, I haven't written about archaeology in a while, or I haven't written about food in a while. Um, and I, I can't say I would make a lot of money off of my blog because I'm not that consistent. I'll be completely honest. Like I, it's very much of a creative pursuit. So if I'm not really like feeling it for a little bit, I, I don't try to force myself to. Um, especially with this pandemic, I'll be completely honest. I haven't uh, written a post since February. There are posts in the work, um, but it's it's a bit of a haphazard process if I'm completely honest but I do um, I will say for the archaeology post I do let what's going on kind of in my archaeology life like um, guide what I write about so if a publication just came out I'll write a post about that publication um, if um, I don't know if I was talking to a friend from one of the countries I work in and a topic came up that I explained in detail that I thought could be helpful, then that might turn into a post. But it's it's on a bit of a whim sometimes, if I'm completely honest. <laughs> oh, good. I know my science communication is often on a whim outside of what we do in this program. Oh so that, yeah, I feel you. Um, next question is, what kind of historical objects have you found? Oh, a lot. Um, I guess I've been doing archaeology since I've been digging for the past 14 years. So we've uncovered a good amount. So, uh, and my blog features some of those things. Of course, there's the typical, for the, at least the places I work in, we um, uncover like ceramics, typically pieces. You rarely find a whole ceramic. That's, a, that's always a great day when that happens. You don't have to put it together um, or try to. Um, you often find lithic objects, which are stone tools or uh, fragments of the stone tool process. Um, you can find bones. Um, and so that could be um, animal bones or like human bones. Um, I particularly enjoy uh, when I find remnants of plant remains, but those usually take processing. So usually we find, um, so in archaeobotany, which is the study of ancient plants, uh, in order to process them in a typical way in the areas I work, you take a bunch of soil, 
inundated with water, charred remains float to the top, you let them dry, um, and then like you can look under a microscope and hopefully identify them. So, um, so sometimes you find things in the field, but other times you might need to do a bit more work, often in the laboratory, to figure out what you're looking at. But they're all important. Um, but if you're curious about, like, you know, objects that you can see itself, uh, one paper that we published and that came out in this past January was at the site of Beta Somati, which is in the Axum Tigray region of Ethiopia, and we found some really interesting objects um, indicative of various um, ritual activities, long distance trade, um, really of like different ideas coming together and spreading and like materializing in a different way. So we found like a carnelian ring, we found um, some really cool architecture. I know you can't take that out with you typically, um, but uh, those are detailed on my blog too. Awesome. What's carnelian? Carnelian, thank you. Uh, so carnelian is a, a type of like gemstone. Um, it's cool. red typically, um, and yeah, it's red typically. So cool, that's awesome. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> cool. All right, the next question is from Meredith. Um, do you have a formal social media plan to promote your blog? For example, intentionally posting something five days a week, or is it more as you go? I think in the past, I was like, oh, like when I'm in the field, I tried to do more like Instagram stories like once a day to keep people posted because um, being in the going to the field, I feel is like a huge privilege. And I know it's an experience that not a lot of people um, have access to and something that everyone I talk to um, that finds out that I'm an archaeologist, they're curious about. And I mean, I wanted to demystify that a bit. So when I'm in the field, I think I'm a far more proactive. Um, when I'm at home, yeah, I'm not as proactive. And um, I'll be honest, with the current pandemic, it I there was kind of like an ethical consideration on what to post about because I do also post about travel. And you know, at first I was like, okay, well, I'll post old travel photos and things like that that and talk about the stories there and um i didn't know if it was the right time for that so i just like paused it so um to answer your question no i don't have a formal social media plan um and if i were to turn this into more of like a side gig as opposed to a purely like passionate pursuit um then i'd probably implement like a schedule. I think that would be helpful for myself if I'm completely honest too. Yeah, I use Buffer for my scheduling um, and it's really super helpful. But um, yeah, when I'm not in the field, I'm not as interesting. I just have less <laughs> stuff to share. Like in the field, it's like 10 Instagram stories a day. Like I found a school snail. I found right. a sea slug. Like there's stuff everywhere. And then when I'm like sitting in Philadelphia, there's just, I mean, I love Philadelphia, but there's just not as much nature and marine invertebrates for sure here. So yeah. Right. yeah. Um, I, I completely feel you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Gavin would like to know, have you done any digs that have been related to the agricultural, agricultural revolution? Yes, so to speak. So it, the agricultural revolution materializes a bit differently in different places. So um, I would say in Oman, like uh, where I did my dissertation, you could say that agriculture came a bit later. Um, so we're looking around, uh, let's say like 
give or take 2700 BCE. Like that's what we're looking at. Um, you can argue a little earlier in some places, a little later in some places. Um, and that was a topic that was of interest to me personally on my dissertation, like looking at the emergence of agriculture in Northern Oman. And I wanted to learn um, about what people were eating or what, what they were cultivating, because just because you cultivate something or grow something doesn't mean you necessarily eat it, um, and where they were living. So um, short answer, yes. Um, I, I've studied that in a sense, but I think what we, what's really cool um, with all the new data coming out around um, agriculture, um, quote unquote, domestication, like where things are origina uh, originating, like the, the story of agriculture is really um, complex and and um, I was happy to contribute a little bit to that regional perspective. That's super cool. So this question is a little bit related to that question um, mm -hmm. from Jess. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between archaeology and food? Sure. Um, so that's a, like, a big, big topic. Um, and I would say, uh, let me see, maybe from a methodological perspective, we use different proxies, so different indicators to study food. Um, Sometimes historians, art historians, and even archaeologists, you can look at artwork to see, you know, maybe what types of food people are eating and how they're interacting with it. Um, even ancient artwork as well. Uh, some people might look at residues on different objects. So that could be stone tools. It could be ceramics, um, grinding stones. And those are stones that are used to grind typically cereals. So we're thinking grains like wheat, barley, things like that. So you can look at residues. Um, some people like myself look at burnt seeds or burnt pieces of charcoal. Um, so that's one thing I did a bit in um, my doctoral work. Uh, but just because you find a burnt seed doesn't mean that, you know, a human necessarily ate it. It could come from an animal. We have um, indications of dung fuel, so, um, so using animal dung as fuel. Um, and then you have to think why was that burned to begin with so um, there's a lot of different proxies we could uh, get at to understand food and what people were eating so um, I mean that's a loaded question a lot of people have written like really cool books and have different ideas about food and the archaeological record um, and if you're kind of like oh where do I start I mean start with what interests you but I really also recommend like looking at how archaeologists are interpreting the archaeological record to understand food. Awesome, that sounds really cool. Um, Cynthia wants to know, how long did it take you to get your PhD and how did you select your dissertation topic? Oh, good question. Um, I guess the straightforward answer is I completed my PhD in six years, um, but the process was a bit longer and holistically. You know, I did my undergrad in archaeology and anthropology at uh, GW. Graduated in 08 with the market collapse. So I can really empathize with like the 2020 grads here. Um, and so I decided to go to graduate school, did a great program at UCL for a year, and then 
um, you know, I wouldn't say I took a break, but I took two years working because I was applying to graduate school and really thinking like, is this for me? Um, fortunately, I got a great offer at NYU and I went and I knew I wanted to work in the Indian Ocean region. I was really open to where that would be. And I knew I wanted to study food in some capacity. Um, so in my graduate work, I got an opportunity to work in Ethiopia and then, and also with the same PI, uh, so the principal investigator in Oman. And then I had to make a choice and for various reasons, um, I decided to focus on Oman while still working um, in Ethiopia. Um, and making that choice kind of somewhat early helped me finish in six years and very grateful to have done so like you know anyone who's gone through graduate school you're like I don't know if this will ever end <laughs> um, but you know having that workforce experience outside of archaeology uh, really helped when I was exploring positions after I did do kind of a quote-unquote traditional postdoc in the academic space but I decided to leave that and take up my current role um, because I you know I thought it offered a better work-life balance and it really helped me do archaeology um, in a way that I kind of wanted to um, and I'm still figuring that out and I think that's why I really like blogging because I have this kind of material record on the internet so to speak of kind of this journey I've had since like 2015 like late into my graduate studies and figuring out like what I want to do with that. That's really awesome. Cool. Um, next question is from Joelle. How do you describe your writing process for your blog and how do you grow your audience? Great. So my writing process, um, it's not as a bit haphazard as actually thinking of blog posts to write. Um, I do it in a very structured way. I typically have a topic and I go through and I like make headings for myself. This is very concrete just because when I'm writing, especially for a blog, I'm really trying to keep in mind their re the reader and their attention span. So I'm not trying to write in an academic way. I don't always succeed in that, but I'm really trying to make information digestible. So for me, that means, okay, having headings, having, you know, shorter paragraphs, like explaining any word you use that someone outside your bubble wouldn't know. So um, sometimes my articles tend to be a little longer because I do a lot of explaining, but um, outlining really helps. Um, then I have to say, like, um, I use the platform WordPress and um, I, I, and I also use Grammarly. I'm not trying to like plug any products, but I found it to be really helpful in um, making suggestions when you're communicating um, to broader audiences so that I have that kind of built in to um, help help me with my writing process. Um, and I typically like start writing straight into WordPress because I'm visual and I like to see what it could look like. Um, if I'm if I'm not at my computer, then I might try to jot down notes somewhere, but um, I really do that on WordPress because for me, it's really important that people understand hopefully what I'm like writing and trying to communicate so that's always even though the topic is my choosing how I communicated the user the reader is definitely in mind and I forgot the second part of the question I'm so sorry there was um, oh how do I grow my audience yeah um, let's let's put it this way I don't actively try to grow my audience um, 
I, I, I put mechanisms for people to connect with me and more importantly also me to connect with other people too. Um, and again, if this was something where I was trying to create a livelihood about it, I would um, put more effort, for example, into my email list which I haven't, um, if you wanna be notified via email, great. Um, but I, for me, the core of it is kind of like, okay, how do I wanna connect with people and um, communicate? So I do do certain things to help my plot my blog posts be found. For example, I found Pinterest to be an amazing place to create some pins about especially travel posts because people who are traveling are looking for inspiration. And I got one of the best compliments yesterday. Like one of my former, like one of my friends, uh, she randomly came across my post like through a search engine post and I was like, oh my gosh, that's success to me. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, so I, Pinterest would be kind of, if, if you really want to grow your audience, uh, Pinterest is a great place because you create the pins, you can optimize, and then people find you because people often use Pinterest as a search engine. Um, like Instagram, for example, I don't think I gain a lot of followers on my blog through Instagram, but I like taking photos. Um, I like, you know, interacting with people there. So that feels like a very authentic medium for me to connect with people. So maybe they'll eventually come to my blog. Maybe they won't, but that's fine with me. But I would say if you're thinking about like growing your audience and strategies, um, I would say don't treat social media like Pokemon. Like you don't need to catch them all. Like <laughs> you really don't. Like, um, pick the mediums that you enjoy or would be excited to learn about um, and then focus there. And you can always add, like always, if you want, if you're worried, like go ahead and grab your handles, but like you don't need to necessarily like be everywhere. And that was the mistake I made in the beginning. I would say like, I didn't really enjoy Snapchat, but I did like, you know, devote some energy to it. And I that would have been better targeted elsewhere. That's really good yeah. advice. That's very good advice. Yeah, like snap up all your handles, but don't, yeah, don't do yeah. bananas. Okay, great. Um, let's see. There are still good questions here. The next question is, do you ever blog about experiences with the people who live in a place where you're digging today? Yeah, I do. Um, but I don't know if they're necessarily the center of the story because I don't want to treat like truly the people who live there or like my friends as like subjects or like objects in any way, but they're very much part of like the experience that I'm having. Um, and um, I really want to res like respect different cultural norms. Like for example, in Oman, like I have great friends in Oman, um, a lot of them who identify as women, and they don't feel comfortable with their the photographs of their like face being taken. Um, so we find creative ways and any photo I take, um, you know, I'm like, hey, is this okay for like me to have or me to post? So I'm just very protective of like those relationships. So it's not that I don't wanna talk about it, but I also don't wanna like break that trust. Um, so, um, and same with my family too. Like, you know, I wanna keep it, you know, personal because that's how people connect, but like respecting everyone involved. So um, yeah, like I, I do in a sense, but um, I'm just very cautious about it. So there, it's not as prominent as you might think. There's like nothing to hide. Like there's no like secret stories that I have per se, but I'm just very cognizant of that. So I hold back if is the default. So. That's, that's smart. That's great. Cool. 
Um, next question from Gavin. Have you ever found something that's like, whoa, that's the best thing I've ever seen? No, not yet, if I'm going to be completely honest. Um, and maybe that'll come in the future. And I think the whole digging and finding something, I also identify as like, you know, a bit of a lab archeologist too. So that process of finding something might come a bit later. So I might get really excited about like a certain wood uh, genre or species that I see under a microscope. And that excitement could be as equal to maybe discovering that carnelian ring. Like I didn't find it myself. Like when I like saw it, I'm like, oh, that's cool. But I, most of my friends would tell you, I probably got really excited about like certain like um, tree structures. So it just kind of depends. Um, yeah, I, I think I get most the most excited about like uh, the different interpretations. So it, it's not as object focused for me, but like, yeah, like when we see some things that and it's cool, that's great. But for me, I'm like, OK, we found all these things and I'm just really excited about this interpretation and putting all those like proxies together. So total nerd answer. But, you know, that's great. <laughs> Awesome. Um, Melissa wants to know, some of us do not have the opportunity to be professional archaeologists. What are some of the best ways to be involved, involved in archaeology as a volunteer and enthusiast? So there are countries and regions who do have uh, digs you could work on. So the excavation process is like a really exciting to you, uh, you can tap into, uh, you, I would look into like your uh, local government office has those resources. Um, maybe um, if there's a local university, you can like ask in. Like museums sometimes are good connectors. I, um, I don't know a great resource off the top of my head that houses that information centrally. If anyone does, like please pop it in the chat. Um, but that's one way if you're interested in the excavation process. There is crowdsourced efforts that I've seen. I haven't engaged in myself. I know I saw a quick question about like uh, Sarah Park work and I know she's done some like community and um, crowdsourced archaeology online. Um, I, I can't speak to like anything about it except that I know about it. Um, other ways to do it could be uh, again engaging, um, reading archaeology blogs, maybe like reaching out to um, a person that you think is interesting, maybe having like a quick chat or informational interview and getting their suggestions because every region of the world is really different on how they operate archaeology um, and how, you know, they allow, like certain places allow people to come in. I have to say Skype a Scientist is really awesome too. Like you can like invite an archaeologist or connect with an archaeologist to come to a classroom or a different space or whatever is permitted. So um, I will say on the travel aspect, um, you know, if you're traveling, I know we're not doing much of that right now, but like um, most places have different types of archaeological sites you could either see or different artifacts in the museum. Um, so that's another way to go about it too. So sounds good. Um, our last question from the audience is going to be from Jen. You mentioned that tomorrow's speaker is your advisor. Can you talk a bit about the role mentorship from other archaeologists has played in your career? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, Dr. Eric Klein was my undergraduate advisor. And funny story, I knew I wanted to be an archaeology major going in uh, to um, undergrad. And I, I guess I'm one of the very few people who stuck with it um, in terms of, you know, keeping the major they go in with. And when I was looking at different schools, I remember um, emailing Professor Klein and I actually went to meet him before I think even applying. Um, and with my mom and he was just so kind and like you know made time to meet with us and I that was just that made a big impression and you know once I got to GW like clearly um, Dr. Klan and I work in very different areas and do different things and even um, when I was an undergrad like I mean my research interests like didn't really like mirror his but he was absolutely supportive I remember just little instances of you know him helping me write my first abstract for a conference um, you know being realistic but also encouraging about applying to like an REU and helping me consider other possibilities as well um and then in applying to grad school like absolutely instrumental and in, like you know writing those recommendations too um and you know just a person I, I think I trusted throughout the process and I really appreciated that and I will say like you know mentorship and being a mentee it's also a bit of a like a two-way street like you know it was on me to like kind of initiate those like conversations it's on me to keep in touch um so hi dr klein thank you <laughs> um so uh i think that mentor relationship um and having a positive one there really highlighted to me the importance of like okay this is important like i shouldn't just like make do with you know a potential even master's advisor uh, PhD advisor uh, things like that so um, that was really um, central and I think that was because of I would say like the positive experience I had totally yeah mentorship it can be make or break in absolutely career. yeah it's so important um, all right so we try to keep these sessions to 45 minutes and we are just about there so we always ask everybody the same two questions at the end sure. of every uh, session. The first is, you have the attention of everybody in the world for five minutes. What do you tell them about archaeology? I would say that there are a lot of diverse perspectives in archaeology, but more are needed. Um, so if you're thinking about pursuing archaeology or studying archaeology, there are of course, a lot of um, challenges, but I was—I would say you absolutely like belong, and like we are interested in having you. Um, I definitely welcome you. And if there is anyone who's interested in being an archaeologist and feel that like there's just so many hurdles, like don't hesitate to contact me. I'm happy to help in any way that I can. So um, I just want. Um, all the people out there to know if you're interested there's always a way and um, we can find a way to make it work for you it might not be being a full-time archaeologist because maybe you want to do it for fun or do something else but there's definitely a lot of ways to engage with the field so. right awesome and then the second question is if you, you still have everybody's attention in the whole world and you want to tell them one thing about literally anything it can be as like big picture important or small and insignificant as you'd like what do you tell them it's really important to understand the information you're receiving and how to interpret that. Whether it's a meme or even a peer-reviewed paper or a blog, um, you're not hurting anyone's feelings. Um, you're being a good scientist researcher. 
thinker by interrogating your sources, understanding where that information is coming from, and possibly how people came to that conclusion. And, and you might not necessarily agree with them, but and that's fine, um, but just checking and understanding your sources in all facets of life. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> that is a key piece of information. That's so, so important. Um, I can't believe that doesn't come up more uh, in these sessions, but yeah, that's, that's great. Um, checking your sources is so important, especially today when so much misinformation is just flying around the internet. Whew, we're we're in an interesting year, aren't we? Yes, we are. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to plug, places we can find you on social media, anything like that? Um, feel free to connect with me on Twitter or Instagram. Um, uh, Twitter is Traveling Arc, um, and Instagram is Traveling Archaeologist. Um, but also, if you Google my name, Smitty Nathan, I think I'm the only one. So that might be <laughs> easier. Um, and just feel free to connect. Um, I don't have anything specific to plug, except I'd love to connect with anyone who's interested. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, to no today. problem. Erin, um, thank you for signing. Thank uh, you, Erin. Yeah, and everyone, thank you for being with us today. Uh, we will be back here tomorrow, 7 p.m., to talk about digging deeper into how archaeology works, and then 1 p.m. Thursday, these are all in Eastern uh, Standard or Daylight Time, whatever we're in right now, Eastern Time, um, to talk about the Southwest. Okay, thank you again for your time. Thank you for being here. Thank you, everyone. No Bye. Thanks. Bye.